Let's call your attention to the fourth chapter of the Ephesian letter. At Wilmington, we've been looking at the Ephesian letter, and and I mentioned it briefly on a Wednesday night meeting. You know, for years, I read the first and second chapter of Ephesians, and I see in the first and second chapter of Ephesians a clear declaration of God's sovereignty, of his electing power, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be without blame, without spot, before him in love, etc. I read about our deadness in Adam and his life-giving power, wherein he says, according, wait, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. And for most of my life, I've seen that mostly as Paul's clear, systematic, theological outline of some of these precious points in God's doctrine about his sovereign grace. But it occurred to me that it's a little bit more. Okay? It's a little bit more. I believe that the Ephesian letter is Paul's letter to them from God. It is a love letter from God. Inspired by the Holy Spirit into Paul's hand, it is God's declaration of his love for the Ephesian church and for you and me. I'll say this briefly because I could talk about this for a very long time. John said, if everything that Jesus said or did were written, he did not believe the world could contain the book. Okay? Some of the most frustrating scriptures to me are found in the letters of John where he says, I will talk about this when I get there. It's like, what? Because I'm not going to be there. You know what I'm saying? He's like, there's more, but I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you when I get there. And I'm like, wait a minute, I don't get to hear that. You know what I'm saying? So there's more that came about in the New Testament times. There were things Paul preached. There were things John preached. There were things Jesus said, things Jesus did that were for them. And that time. There's even a whole missing letter that Paul wrote. And he told them to pass it around. But we don't have it. We have something that somebody wrote 200 years later or better that claimed to be the letter that Paul wrote, but it isn't. Okay? Now, why do I say all of that? I want to illustrate how precious this is. Because it was preserved for you and me. I claim every promise in this word because it was preserved for me. You following me? I encourage you to claim every promise in this word because it was preserved for you. Jesus told the apostles in the end of Matthew, I am with you until the end of the world. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. That was not written for them. By the time Matthew penned it, most of them were dead. That was written for you. You following me? These things weren't written for the benefit of well, they were. This was, Ephesian letter was certainly written for the benefit of the Ephesian brethren, but it was preserved for your benefit. So although Paul writes to the Ephesian, according as he hath chosen us in him, and he's talking about the us in, is that is himself, perhaps the people that were with him, and the brethren at Ephesus, I believe I have the authority to claim to be counted in that number. That we are the us. 
chosen before the foundation of the world. And Christ is immutable. Big word, it means he doesn't change. Let that sink in for a moment. Because everything you've ever seen changes. Everything you have ever encountered changes. Okay? We grow. We get older. The world seems to change. Now, there are some things that are constant. Man, human nature doesn't change. Okay? We're just as desperately wicked now as we were back then. Okay? It is only God's restraining power that prevents the, every thought of our minds from being evil only continually. Okay? Human nature doesn't change. People change. Mankind doesn't change. But people change. I mean, we change a lot. I remember when you were bringing those girls like those girls. Okay? And when you had a couple about that size. You know? We all get older. I used to have hair. Some of you remember when I actually had hair. You know? We change a lot. Sometimes it's for the better and sometimes it's not. God does not change. You know, Bel Air has changed. Some of you remember when there used to be a cow where the chilies is. Okay? But God does not change. And our salvation depends upon it. Okay? Your salvation is sure because God does not change. He loved you before he said, let there be light. Before you did any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. He loved you. He loved you with an everlasting love. He coveted with his son, Jesus Christ, before the world began. To secure your salvation. And he loved you just as much then as he did on the cross when he took your sins in his own body and he paid your sin debt on the tree of the cross. And he hasn't changed. He's loved you just as much as when he quickened you and he opened your eyes to see him. He changed that he put, he did heart surgery. He removed that stony heart and he gave you a heart of flesh. And he, he taught you that you are a sinner. I know that's really kind of counterintuitive, isn't it though? But the guilt that you have for your sins is probably one of the strongest evidences of eternal life. Okay? And he did that. He gave you that. That is a gift. Repentance is a gift from God. Okay? And he loves you just as much today as he did when he first opened your eyes to see him. As he did when he paid the price on Calvary's cross. As he did in the morning of time before creation when he covenanted with the Father. To secure your soul forever. And he's not going to change his mind. I've got teenage daughters. Okay? Some of you have had teenage daughters. Some of you were teenage daughters, right? And of course, teenage guys are not immune. Were, 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 they, were teenagers fickle when you were a teenager? In love with someone one day and can't stand them the next? Or is it just me? Okay? Aren't you glad God's not like that? And you know what? <clears throat> it doesn't stop when they grow out of their teens either. Anyway, the issue is God doesn't change his mind like we change our minds. His love is eternal. And we need to embrace that. We live in a world where men's hearts have grown cold. And love, real love, not the Hollywood variety, not the self-interested lust you see on the silver screen, but real love is becoming a very rare 
commodity. It's what everyone wants. But so, so often it's so hard to lay hands on it. And then when we find it, you know, we're like Jacob. Remember when they told him his son was dead and showed him the coat of winning colors? He believed on the spot. My son has been ripped to shreds by a vile beast, right? Didn't quite say that. He did say, surely my son is torn. But then when they told him your son's alive, he didn't believe it. He didn't believe it until he saw the chariots. And when the Egyptian uh, wagon train started coming to take him, he knew. He said, I will go and see my son before I die. We, we, sometimes we're like that. We, we, we don't, we're not ready to believe it even when it's right in front of our eyes. And one of the things Paul is stressing to the Ephesian brethren is God loves you. He loves you personally. He loves you individually. He knows your name. And your name is written in heaven. And it's one of the most important things that we can grapple with is the love of God. Because Everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary. See, if we honestly believe that God loves us, then his commandments are not grievous. Because we know that he has given us his commandments for our good and his glory. Think about it. This, so... Over the summer, my um, explorer gave up the ghost, and we bought a uh, Jeep Grand Cherokee Laredo from King Dodge. It did not come with an owner's manual. You know how frustrating that is? It did not come with an owner's manual. Now, I know how to drive without reading an owner's manual, but I finally bought one on eBay, right? And I learned that my steering wheel not only goes up and down, but it goes in and out. I'm like, whoa, this is cool. You know what I'm saying? Brethren, this is the owner's manual written by the manufacturer for your life. Oh, you can live your life without the manual. Just like I can drive the Jeep without the manual. But there are things about your life that are wonderful that you will miss if you don't read the manual. Features that God has, blessings that God has in store for you. Oh, and God's blessings aren't like man's blessings. They're pressed down, running over and shaken together. Okay? I don't, if, you've, if you've noticed, manuals are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and harder and harder to read. This one doesn't change size. They print it with bigger and little letters. I need bigger and bigger ones as I get older and older. That's another way of change. I run out of arm. But that's a different story. The point being, there are so many wonderful things. Aspects of our lives. Blessings that God has in store for us. That we will miss out on if we are not familiar with the owner's manual. If we're, I mean, it's not enough to read it once. It's not like an Agatha Christie novel. You get to the end, ah, I know who did it, and you never have to touch that book again. Okay? And I had the fourth chapter open. I'm out of time, so I'm not going to go here. But I do want to draw your attention to it. Paul says he's given us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And it's not pastors and teachers. It's pastors and teachers because every pastor is a teacher. It's one role. The pastor-teacher is one role. I remember when I was little, they used to talk about teachers and preachers. They said every preacher is a teacher, but evidently not every teacher is a preacher, but that's a different issue. God gave us the apostles, okay? Now, brethren, there are no apostles today. 
I hate to disappoint you, but there are no apostles today. Because one of the qualifications for being an apostle is that you actually had to have laid eyes on the risen Christ. Okay? Nobody has done that now. Every apostle laid eyes on the risen Christ. If you remember when Judas Iscariot died, Peter said that the scripture must be fulfilled and the scripture that must be fulfilled was specifically about the one that betrayed Christ and it said his bishopric let another man take. Judas Iscariot is the exception that makes the rule. He and he alone was replaced. When James, the son of Zebedee, died, he was martyred by Herod. He was not replaced. That happened in the days that Luke saw. He could have recorded, he recorded everything around it, but the apostles didn't get together. They didn't uh, make a selection, a point two, and cast lots for someone to replace James. That was only Judas Iscariot. Okay? That was only Judas Iscariot. Paul saw the risen Christ. There are marks of the apostleship. He talks about them in the Galatian letter and they were all visible in the apostle Paul. But there are no apostles today. But we have their testimony. We have their affidavits. We have their teaching and their instruction that has been preserved for us. There may be prophets in our world today. But we have been taught how to try prophets. We taught how to try apostles too. Remember the Ephesians tried the apostles. That's those that say they are apostles and are not and found them lying. Okay? The scripture talks about how to judge a prophet. So if what they prophesy comes to pass, then we know that they... It, excuse me. If what they prophesy does not come to pass, we know they are not prophets. Not of the Lord. Even if what they predict does come to pass, that doesn't necessarily mean they're a prophet. Because if they teach us contrary to what the Lord has already taught, then they are not a prophet of the Lord. He says that the Lord tested thee. In the Galatian letter, Paul said, If I or an angel from heaven give you any preach unto you any other gospel than that which you have already received, let him be accursed. He says it twice, okay? But we have the record of the prophets, do we not? Moses is called a prophet, is he not? And we have the five books of Moses. The Jews divide the scripture, the Old Testament, into three pieces. The law, which is uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We have the writings which are Job and Solomon, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, etc., etc. And then everything else is considered the prophets. Because they consider Joshua and Ruth and 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Nehemiah, Ezra, all of those, they all consider that to be part of the prophet because they consider their history to be prophetic. Okay? So we have in the scriptures the testimony of the prophets. An evangelist is someone who declares the truth, preaches it. Brethren, you will hear what you already know more often than not in this pulpit. However, by the foolishness of preaching, God has chosen to save his people, not from a lake of fire, but from the pitfalls where we live right here and right now. This is not a roadmap to get you to heaven, okay? God knows better. If he gave you a map, you would get lost. So he knows better. He's coming for you, okay? He's going to get you and bring you home because he has every intention of bringing home what he purchased. Okay? When you go out to the store, you expect to bring home whatever you purchase, right? 
You'd be upset if you didn't bring home what you spent your hard-earned money for. How much less or how much more will God bring home each and every one he purchased with his own blood? He's not going to chance losing you. In fact, what he said was, My Father who gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. You are in God's hand, and he's not going to let you go. And yes, all Baptists do preach a handful in heaven. We do, but it is God's hand. The heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. His hand is big enough to contain the names of everyone embraced in the covenant of grace. And not just your names, but all of you. Body, soul, and spirit. He's not going to let any of you go because he loves you with an everlasting love. And he wants you to live the life that you have been given abundantly for your good and his glory. That's why he's given you pastors and teachers. Pastors feed the sheep. They take care of the sheep. They protect the sheep. When David says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Part of that is because the shepherd drives off the predators and defends the sheep with his rod and his staff. Remember David's testimony before Saul? He said, while I kept my father's sheep, a lion came to devour the sheep. He said he grabbed it by his beard and smote it with his staff. Okay? Let that sink in for a moment. You know, I mean, that, that, that belongs in an action movie, right? He grabs it by his beard and smites it with his staff. A little brief footnote in Scripture, but meditate on that for a moment. That a bear came to devour the sheep. And what did David do? He said, I grabbed it by the beard and I smote it with my staff. Brethren, that's not like slingshotting it from across the field. That's getting up close and personal. You understand what I'm saying? Wrestling. The scripture talks about wrestling. Wrestled. And the Lord preserved him. And I I promise you, the God that preserved David through his wrestling will preserve you through your wrestling. I do not advocate fighting bears and lions with just a staff. Okay? But I will tell you, That the Lord loves you. He wants you to be well grounded and well rooted. And he wants you to be protected by the truth. He wants you to be liberated by the truth. And he's given you his scriptures. He's given you apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. So that you would know the truth. And the truth would make you free. There's a lot of lies out there. And those lies are told to enslave you. Okay? Oh, they look pretty. And they're the advocates will will present to you freedom. Freedom! Freedom from the bounds of this antiquated theology. Freedom from the misogynistic establishment and the patriarchy. There is no freedom except the freedom that's found in the Word of God and the freedom from sin. That's freedom. Now we need to be careful because we can get caught up 
in what's going on in our time. And we can embrace worldly tenets, sometimes even unbeknownst to ourselves. Our brothers and sisters in the past have done that. They have, to their hurt, embraced ideas that are not, do not originate from God's word and God's truth. That's why we need to stand in the ways and seek the old paths. Um, as a scientist, we often encounter what we call NIH, not invented here. So it means if it, if it was not invented here, then it can't be right, right? Because we're, we're the smart people. We've got to be careful that we don't embrace that attitude among us. Just because we've never done it that way doesn't mean it's wrong. It's wrong or it's right because it's taught in this word. And maybe we forgot. Maybe we are, our, our ancestors were slothful. Or maybe their world didn't need what we need right now. And they got, we all, am I the only person who fights bouts of laziness? Okay. We all are subject to that. And just because some other group somewhere else never let go of or discovered something that the word teaches that we haven't been doing doesn't mean it's wrong. It's right because it's in here. It's wrong because it's not in here or can contrary to what the word teaches. Not because we've always done it this way or they've always done it this way. We need to open our minds to the word of the Lord. Let the word teach us. Let the Lord teach us because he loves us. We need to embrace that. That's so critical. If you read Jesus' letter to the Ephesian brethren, you know, I used to think that they were separated by a generation, but they probably weren't. Okay? I don't want to go into the dating of the revelation because that's a topic that we could talk about for a long time and might not be that valuable. But there's a strong indication that it's the same Ephesian church that Paul is writing to that Jesus is writing to. And that church is doing everything right except they have forgotten their first love. Paul is trying to cause them to remember their first love by telling them in a very real and powerful way, God loves them. It is my blessed duty to proclaim the message that God loves you. May the Lord richly bless you all. And we certainly appreciate what has gone before. And now we invite you again uh, to the study of God's holy word uh, from the book of Revelation. Uh, about a month ago, we opened up a subject uh, from Revelation chapter 13, uh, from which I invite your attention again as we continue. I wasn't able to finish uh, some of my thoughts that time, so I want to continue on as we talk about the beast in particular and something in relative to uh, the marking of that beast. And I find uh, the scriptures that we want to read for you are in Revelation 13 and verses 16, 17, and 18. So it is a privilege to stand before you and to share some of the right hand, uh, some of the uh, deli- uh, the words of God, and we appreciate uh, so much what we've heard about the love of Christ, which is uh, given to us. Now, listen carefully to this scripture. Let's let's re- read verse sixteen. Well, verse fifteen, and he had power. He's talking about the beast, the uh, 
the false prophet. He had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Uh, it, there's some frightening things in the book of Revelation. Uh, we were at a prayer meeting last week, and one of the sisters made mention of the fact that when she reads Revelation, which I agree with her wholeheartedly, that it is a scary book. I'm reading about things like this, that whoever would not worship the image of the beast would be killed. You know, I know there's a lot of trepidation in regards to the book of Revelation, maybe primarily because it does speak of judgment, and it does speak of persecution. But that's probably the very reason why the book of Revelation was presented. So that we would stand fast and be patient. That we would be strong. That we would not give, give way to fear. Verse 16, it only gets worse. Because the extent of that persecution is very widespread. When it, when it mentions, and he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. And now he's going to give us that number in verse 18. And he wants us all to apply our hearts to wisdom. He said, here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. Now you could say something about the book of Revelation, and, and, and it is this, and that is it depicts the end of the church age and the beginning of the eternal age in glory. And uh, although we made a lot of preliminary remarks regarding their understanding of the book of Revelation at our last visit, and it would be impossible for me to go through all those right now. But suffice it to say, it certainly is uh, something that contributes to the fact that our life is lived once, this life, our mortal life, our physical life, and it comes to an end. I was listening to a brief video of Ricky Gavais and his hosting of the Academy Awards. Of course, I didn't see the Academy Awards. I don't have network television. I'm not really interested in that particular uh, venue. But I did catch wind of what he said. It's interesting how, in spite of the greats of the world, where great awards are given out for uh, great uh, human talent, and rightfully so, but in the middle of all that, it's amazing how sometimes... Snippets of truth have a way of getting out. Well, in the process of uh, explaining to people that what he was about to say was nothing but jokes, that they were to be considered jokes, so that they would have a little bit, uh, a little more tolerance in their reception of what he was about to say, he went on to say that there is no sequel to life. There is no sequel to life, and how true that is. In other words. There's no continuation of the life that we now live. And in Hollywood, it seems to be just the opposite. Michael Jackson is not dead in the minds of many people. You can still see him on screen. You can hear his music played. And in some cases, they may have a portrait of him or a progression of him on 3D as if he's a living and breathing. No, there is no sequel to life. No matter how we electronically convey or package someone uh, as if they are still alive. This is one life that we have to live. And at the end of this life, by the grace of God, we'll move on to the spiritual world, the eternal kingdom. But while we live in this world, there are a lot of hardships that we must bear. The book of Revelation conveys much of that hardship as it portrays the church age in a variety of cycles. These cycles depict the difficulty of living as a Christian in this world. The world and the devil persecute. Now we recall in this particular chapter there were a variety of threes. There were three enemies that attacked three ways. The enemies that attacked were the great dragon, which is the devil himself, the first beast, and then the second beast. 
There's three. And what I draw a conclusion to is that in terms of the devil, there's a lot of parody going on. In other words, there's a lot of mimicking. And the devil mimics what God himself does. There's the Holy Trinity. And yet, there's also the Satan and the two beasts, the false prophet and the, the other beast that supports that second beast and supports the great dragon. But then there's three attacks. There's three attacks against God and his word. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly that the Bible has been preserved for us, especially in spite of all these attacks down through the church age, not only against Christians, but against, against truth, against his word. We find those three that are attacked in verse 6, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. We made note of the fact that whenever people speak from a worldly perspective, they speak in a way that often blasphemes God, that goes against his truth. When they say things that are contrary to his truth, it's blasphemy. To blaspheme, secondly, not only his name, but his tabernacle. That word tabernacle can be associated with the Lord Jesus himself. He has tabernacled amongst men. In heaven, there's no physical tabernacle because Christ is there. He is our tabernacle. But it also may convey the fact of the church of God. Uh, the world is antagonistic and hostile toward the church of God. And then thirdly, notice what it says in this third frontal attack by these, uh, this, this triangle of axis of evil. It says, to them that dwell in heaven. And there's those in this Bible, this chapter, that are depicted of those that dwell on earth. And there are those that dwell in heaven. And those that dwell in heaven are a picture of the saints, the people of God, the servants of the Lord, as Brother Chuck spoke, even those who are prophets, pastors, even teachers. And so we have uh, verse 7, a summation of those uh, referred to as saints in verse 7. And so we have uh, uh, this this idea uh, presented in 13th chapter. And now as we come to this third point, we see there's another three that we didn't quite get to in our last visit, and that is the number six. Six hundred, three score, and six. And we want to convey a little bit this morning in terms of what it means to bear a mark. Now, as I said, Satan likes to mimic the work of God. And one of the aspects of mimicking the work of God is not only to have a people, the people that dwell on earth, people that will worship the beast and the image, but also to identify those people, to mark those people out. So Satan has his way to identify them. Here, uh, this, it's, it's nothing unusual in the Bible to read uh, about God himself marking his people. Uh, Wednesday night, Brother Danny read for us the 22nd chapter of Book of Revelation. And all he did was read it. And in the beginning of this book, it says, John says that blessed are those who read the words of the prophecy of this work, of this book. And it, it, was, it rang true to me that evening, Wednesday last, when he read Revelation 22. That's all he did. He didn't comment on it. He just read it. And I, I picked up so many things out of that chapter that were a blessing to me. It seemed to me that by just reading this book, it was opening up truths. And he mentioned, of course, those who had the image of the Heavenly Father in their forehead. And it reminded me of this text right here. And I could envision fully and practically being blessed just by listening to the reading of the Scripture. And of course, that blessed introduction by the the Apostle John goes on to say, not only are they blessed to read, but also to hear and also to keep the words of the prophecy of this book. So we're very thankful that we have the book of God before us, that we can read it. On many occasions, the apostle uh, reminded the people of God just to read the epistles that were circulated among the churches. Have them read in the churches. How important it is to give diligence to reading the scriptures because you may be blessed in the doing of it. Now, you'll never understand what it means to hear the Bible if you don't read it. So, blessed are they that hear, right? Right? 
But first, you have to read it. So blessed are they that read, and then hear, and then what's the third aspect? You can't keep the Scriptures. You can't keep the commandments of God unless, of course, you hear them or be obedient to them. And so, this, again, this idea is that we apply our hearts not only to um, hearing and reading and keeping, but we are mindful of three other particular words in the 13th chapter that are very key in helping us sort out all the details uh, of what's going on around us in the world, the difficulty that we read about in the book of Revelation. And those three key words that we mentioned were faith, were patience, and were wisdom. Faith, patience, and wisdom. Those three words are used in Revelation chapter 13. And with those three words, we are better equipped to understand what's going on in terms of the hostility of the world, the hatred toward God, the total rebellion against God. What I find ironic in the book of Revelation is the multiple places, again, in these cycles where the judgment of God is poured out upon the world and upon unbelieving man. And it's like I would think, and you might think, that unbelieving man may stop in their tracks, turn, repent, and serve God because of the total destruction and the devastation and the intensity of judgment. But they do just the opposite. They dig in. They rebel. They despise. They hate. They continue on to blaspheme God. And you can read about that in the Bible. But the idea of patience... Patience and suffering. I mean, you know, we can read about these things and we can read about people suffer. Paul said he suffered. What does it mean to suffer? And yet on top of that, to be patient in it. And then be uh, faithful. How do you be faithful during suffering? And then, of course, to be wise in understanding the Bible. One of the points that we made last month was the fact that wisdom, being a very important aspect of understanding the book of Revelation, zeroes in on the emphasis of the Old Testament literature in order to understand what's being said in the book of Revelation. And that's why he refers to wisdom. Of course, this draws our mind to the book of Daniel because at that particular time, Daniel was encouraged to seal up the words of the prophecy concerning the end times, when men shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. He said, seal up, close it up. And then just the opposite is said when Dan, Brother Danny read from Revelation 22 that the seal was to be broken. And so during the church age, right now and since the Apostle John, we have the opportunity as saints of God to dig into the Bible because the seal has been broken. And we can understand things that before were hidden secrets, concealed and mysterious. This idea of bearing a mark in our foreheads is nothing really uh, that is um, something to be uh, uh, misunderstood today because the Old Testament literature uh, sets forth what this idea is. And... Let's just turn just briefly to it in Deuteronomy chapter 32, or I'll, I'll go to verse, uh, third, Deuteronomy 6 and hit this point here. There's several ones in 5th, 6th, 11th, and 32nd chapter. You can see something similar to the same thing. And he said to the children of Israel in, the old, in, in that particular day uh, to bind basically the word of God to their frontlets, between their eyes. Literally, to put it upon their head and also upon their, uh, the bonded upon their house. So, we look at that and we may uh, come to the conclusion that it's something physical in nature. But actually, if you read the context of these scriptures, like in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's really about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with your mind. Unfortunately, by the time the Lord Jesus Christ shows up in his ministry, the Pharisees were parading themselves around in a showboat-style religion. It was showmanship, and they were presenting themselves before people as something superior to others. And one way 
by which they did this was by phylacteries. And these phylacteries, according to the scriptures, are little boxes. And they take this box and they put scriptures in the box and then they strap it around their forehead. Well, this is the idea of bearing the image of our Heavenly Father in our forehead from a physical standpoint. This was a mistake. It was never meant to be that way. It was always a heart religion. Uh, The truth of God, they were to understand for themselves and then be able to teach others, especially their children. That's the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's also the context of Deuteronomy 11 and the previous chapter in 5. Now, in the 36th chapter of Deuteronomy, something else is in addition is said. And the Lord is saying something. He's saying, basically, you are not bearing the mark of my children. In other words, by the way they lived and walked and talked, they looked more like their neighbors around about. The neighbors that were alienated from the life of God. Neighbors that were strangers to the... Uh, oracles of God, strangers to the covenants of promise. They were complete pagans. But the Israelites who were delivered from the iron furnace of Egypt were acting like their neighbors, even though they had no reason to be. They were redeemed. And so God says to them, learn the law, keep it in your heart, teach your children, put it on the doorpost of your house, and lay it on the forefronts between your eyes But it wasn't meant to be a showboat religion. It was not to be placed on the forefront in a physical way. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing in the day and age in which the Lord Jesus walked. And so, we must conclude, we must conclude that what the Lord speaks about when he says that the name of our Heavenly Father is in our foreheads, it's not physical in nature. And we can basically surmise that just from the second commandment of the Ten Commandments. Make no graven image. Make no image of all at all. And you remember the pagans did it at Mars Hill. They did that kind of thing. Graven images, graven in their hands, graven in their arms, graven in their foreheads. This is a near ancient practice, virtually. In almost all religions, especially pagan religions, they would inscribe or tattoo themselves Uh, aspects of their ceremony and ritualistic worship services. It's purely paganism. God's people are known differently. They're known for their walk, their talk. They're known for their manifestation of what is in their heart. And so when we read about this mark in Revelation that the saints of God have, and also the idea of a mark that the uh, triangular axis of evil, if you will, Satan places upon his own people, we see the, the, the reason why he wants to resemble the work of God by placing a mark, the number 666, in others of his own kind, you see. But they're similar, but they're different. What's literal about this particular case, you know, we, 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 we notice that in our text, no man was able to buy or sell who had the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. In other words, it seems to be, in John's particular day, that it was a possibility that there may have been some sort of physical marking that kept them. Maybe some sort of union. You know, if you didn't belong to the union, they had gills in those days in the Roman Empire, and if you didn't belong to a certain uh, trade gill or union, that you were outside the ability to buy or sell. So in those particular times, there may have been a literal aspect of what we read about. But in every age, in every age, and in particular the age in which we live, we're finding it uh, very commonplace that for Christians in any particular place to be quiet, to be hushed up as the power of the world and the influence of the world and the social media of the world uh, present their wares in principles and philosophies at odds with Christian principle and doctrine. And as a result, a lot of God's people are quiet. because, In other words, they are subjecting themselves to the thinking and the thoughts of the world. Now, there's a limit to that, but we're all like the proverbial frog in the warm water, soon to be boiled to death for our silence. This is the fear that I have. In other words, uh, there's a strong delusion in the world that Satan... 
under the direct power and influence, listen, under the direct control and sovereignty of God, because always remember this one thing about the power of Satan throughout the book of Revelation. He can only do what is given him to do. Always remember that. The Lord Jesus Christ, if any book in the Bible portrays him as king who is reigning, it's the book of Revelation. He's reigning in the churches. That first cycle in chapter 2 and 3, he's reigning in the churches. The stars are in his hand. That's the preachers, the messengers of the church, the pastors. The stars are in the hands. You can see the sovereign Christ ruling in the churches in that first cycle in the book of Revelation. And throughout the entirety of the book of Revelation, through an additional six cycles, we see Christ reigning. And whenever that ugly monster called the great red dragon reveals his ugly head and persecutes the church of God, it is always under the direct power and authority of Christ who is sitting on the right hand of all majesty. You see, that's a beautiful aspect. Now, I want you to look at the book of Revelation from God's vantage point, not your own. That's where we get the idea that it's scary. Certainly it's scary when you look at it from my perspective, but not when you look at it from God's perspective. Now, in the book of Ezekiel, there's a great analogy to this idea of mark. Now, in the ancient Near East, the mark was important for identification, for authority, but also for security. And that makes sense. If you can't travel to Europe without a, uh, what do they call them? What is it? Passport. What's that passport do? It gives what? Identification. It gives authority. And it gives security. You can't go anywhere without it. So it's not uncommon. You know, we're not talking about a far-fetched thing here as we read about this idea of a mark that gives us a certain liberty and freeway. But notice in Ezekiel chapter 9, it is a really neat passage that conveys some of the truths in that description of what a mark might represent. Ezekiel, remember, was a priest that was carried away in Babylonian captivity. And he had a great vision on the side of the river Kibar. And that wasn't a river near Jerusalem, in the homeland. That was a river in Assyria, in the enemy territory. And God revealed, what did he reveal to this wasted, captive priest called Ezekiel? He revealed to him that God is on his throne. That's a beautiful picture of the reigning God in Revelation chapter 1 and 2. And in chapter 10, of course, it's a terrible depiction of God leaving the house of God and the glory of God departing. But in the ninth chapter, we see some of the mechanism that, pre, uh, that comes before uh, that total um, destruction. And I'll just summarize it real quick. We have six men that are going to visit the house of God at Mount Zion, and all around about, but primarily the temple, because it was polluted. It was polluted. You know, the temple was polluted. I like what Brother Chuck was preaching about, how important it is to safeguard the Bible from innovation, from things that are added, because the world loves to press its limits upon the church and the sanctuary of God, which is holy unto the Lord, righteousness unto the Lord. But man, by virtue of who he is and what he is, is very innovative. God made him a very engineering type style creature. He's got education. He's got knowledge. He's got wisdom. Just by nature, he does. He far exceeds the, uh, uh, of the animal kingdom because of his intelligence. He's made in the image of God. And so he's very ingenious, if you will. And some of that ingenu- ingenu- uh, that ingenious attitude and and skill and innovation enters in under the influence of the world and his own self into the assembly of God. Well, it couldn't have been more devastating than during the time of Ezekiel. It was filthy. And we don't even have to go into it to understand what that might convey. But anyway, these six men, by the way, in my opinion, are angels. But there was another one who came along with the six men, a seventh man, and he was clothed in linen and had an inkhorn by his side. An inkhorn was a little uh, 
carrier, uh, a jar strapped to the waist with ink. And so the penman, or the author, if you will, remember the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, the author was the penman in this case. And he was to record everything that he saw. But one thing in addition he was to do, in verse 4, And the Lord said unto him, in other words, here's the Lord God the Father saying unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have a theophany. This is an Old Testament appearance of the living incarnate, excuse me, the living word, the logos of God, the word of God. Just like the days of, uh, when uh, the three visited Abraham in Mamre. You remember prior to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was two angels and the Lord the angel of the Lord. And so we have here is we have six men who came from the way of the higher gate. There's various gates in the temple. And these angels came from the higher gate. And but the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, notice. The Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark. Set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst of Thereof, And so he did. He set a mark upon them. And what did he do? In other words, he protected them from the judgment that was to come. Because this six, these six men had in their hands weapons of slaughter. And they killed. Are you ready? You're talking about scary? Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women. But come not near unto the man upon whom is the mark. And begin in my sanctuary... That they may be, uh, <clears throat> then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. And so, what a devastating picture of the judgment of God upon his own people who did not bear the spot of their heavenly Father. They were to bear the mark of their God, they were to be identified by the love of God in their heart, by the worship of the true and living God. But they bore a false mark, and as a result, they were judged. But those that sighed, and those that cried, those that had conviction in their heart toward a holy God, a produce of the Holy Spirit of God Himself, were spared and were delivered. That basically is a a colorful illustration of what we're talking about in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, in the seventh chapter in particular where you have the angels coming out and uh, about ready to pour out the vials of wrath. I mean, there's some serious stuff going on in the book of Revelation. It is scary. There is no doubt about it. But the Lord's people who bore the mark of the Father in their foreheads were spared. They were not hurt. In other words, they were preserved. And this makes sense. This is colorful. This is conveyed by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, I believe it is, where he says, The foundation of God standeth sure. Every um, and, and having this seal. What seal? The Lord knoweth them that are His. In other words, there's a preservation of God's children that are behold and beheld in that covenant of grace. And then he goes on to say and speaks of perseverance. So you've got preservation and perseverance in one verse in the New Testament. He says, let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's where perseverance comes in. But anyway, in our book of Revelation, chapter 13... This picture is astounding as it conveys what the enemy is doing with his own people, those people that dwell on the earth, by marking them and conveying this mark to them. And that mark was defined by their worship of the image. Now, who knows what that image might be? I don't know. The Bible doesn't go into those kind of details. In the book of Revelation, it doesn't really have to be. And I'm going to go... Now to the last point to convey something to you, which I believe John is conveying here. I think it's very important for us to understand it today. The Bible, in, 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 in this symbolic language of the book of Revelation, details aren't given, although we could probably deduce some details. I mean, just from the number 666, it is my understanding. It is my understanding that ancient languages... You are based on numbers. And you can take various letters, like for instance the letters of the Greek alphabet. Alpha, one, beta, two, and so on. The same thing with ancient 
Near Eastern, especially religions that came out of uh, India and influenced all of Europe, had a numbering system. The problem is that people today take this and go in many, many different directions and details not conveyed by the main point of the gospel uh, by John the Apostle here. You can come up with a lot of names that if you do the math and you look at it from the, the significance of the lettering system, come to a conclusion of 666. Nero was one of them. And who knows, maybe in that particular day, John was conveying to the early churches in Asia uh, the aspect of that beast that lived at that particular time. Who knows? And Domitian, another uh, emperor that would wreak havoc upon the saints of God and killed many and, and put them into those, uh, in those galleries where people, thousands of people, uh, watched as Christians would be fed to the lions. I mean, this, was, this is no mythology. That's actual history. And these accounts actually took place. And maybe in some measure they could do the math and see how these emperors could certainly bear the mark of 666. But people take it today and apply it to everybody because the error, or the, the, the thing is that you could be subject to error because many names, if you do the math, could be derivative of 666. But here's the point I believe John is trying to convey to the readers and the hearers. Blessed are they that read and those that hear and keep. What he's trying to convey to these dear people and you today the same message that the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians he was being conveyed to stand fast and not be shaken in mind, but to be strong, patient, faith, and wise. Patient, faith, and wise. Be strong. How do you be strong? How do you be patient and strong? It's not easy, is it? Let me give you a worn-out illustration that most preachers have used many, many times, and you probably know all too well. But when Jackie Robinson first went into the big leagues, the Brooklyn Dodgers, right there in New York, he was the first African-American in professional sports, baseball that is. He was a great second baseman, but they put him on first base. You know why? Because the hatred toward him was so profound because of the color of his skin, that the manager was afraid to put him on second base for fearing that people would slide into him trying to take his head. So they put him on first base. But on one particular game, after they first placed him at second base, old Pee Wee Reese, the shortstop, he was a great shortstop. And you know the story. He committed an error, not Pee Wee Reese, but Jackie Robinson, as great as he was, committed an error, and the whole stadium went ballistic on him. All kinds of names, horrific names. I'm ashamed to even think that what Americans can do in that particular day and era, long beyond the Civil War era. But, oh, but, but Pee Wee Reese went over to him while all the crowd was hollering all kinds of profanities toward that man. He put his arm around him and gave him comfort. This is the point. In spite of all the suffering and the ridicule and the slander and the maligning of your character by the world itself that you as a Christian must take as the world turns worse and worse, you are to be patient and take it. Take the suffering for the Lord of glory. That's the idea of patience. And that's the idea of the suffering that the people of God endure during this particular age, this church age. And it will get worse because as these cycles of historical church age that is conveyed in the book of Revelation gets worse toward its end because toward the end that great red dragon will be loosed a little season and he'll be let out of his cage, if you will. And he's going to wreak havoc as much as God's sovereignty allows him to have he will wreak havoc upon the church, upon the saints, and those that dwell on earth, the Lord's people. But anyway, you are to have faith, you are to have patience, and you are to have wisdom. And here's the point that John is conveying. That in spite of these beasts, there's one thing that you cannot forget. They bear the mark of the number 
of a man. In other words, they're limited. As powerful as they may be, and as frightening as they may be, and we're not just talking about something that we can read about that took place centuries ago, like we've mentioned Nero and these terrible emperors. Just look in in the lives of several people here in this room had to experience beasts of Europe like Hitler. And, And check this out. We've got the experience of a great empire falling. And we're not reading it in the history books of long ago. We're reading it in, in, in as recent as, what, 1994, when the great Soviet empire fell, collapsed, in our own lifetime. That's an amazing fact. They were a beast to Christians. And they're a beast today to Christians. But here's the point. They bear the number of the man. They bear a number of a man. 666. They're limited. They don't bear the number of the Lord Jesus Christ, the author, that seventh man. See his number? Not six. He's the seventh man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord from heaven. May the Lord bless you. glad you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you.